0: Greetings and welcome to Witnesses of the King. Witnesses of the King, this time we're going to bring our study of the book of Acts to a close. And I assure you this has been an overview. This is the 48th installment and I can honestly say there are many things, many issues, many details that we skipped. So I encourage you going forward to continue to read the book, continue to examine the book, to see all that you can get out of it. And I want to wrap it up today by really putting this in perspective and looking at what Luke's purpose was in writing as we looked at at the beginning to review that and to see really what is the rest of the story here. Why does it end the way it does and what can we learn from the way that it has ended and from what we know of Paul's future since. Today's text will be the last two verses of the book. It'll be Acts chapter 28 verses 30 to 31. And it's safe to say this could be described as an epilogue. In other words, at the end of the story, what do we have to say about it? What do we want to uh, get out of this? And how can we put this in perspective as we move forward past our study of these things? So it was called, the whole series was called Witnesses of the King, and it was called that for a very specific reason. I called it Witnesses of the King because it is about the initial witnesses, the eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ who went and told their testimony. But it's more than that because he told them in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, you will be my witnesses. And we understand that the witnessing did not stop with the first generation. It didn't end with those who at first eyewitnessed Jesus Christ himself or him after his rising from the dead. And so we recognize it continues. And this is the theme of these last two verses, is that this work continues on. So it not only speaks of the apostles who saw him, the, those who walked with him, but those who continue to go and testify to this very day. And so let's begin by reading these last two verses here as we have them, and we can examine them together. It says this in Acts chapter 28, verses 30 and 31. It says, he lived there, that is in Rome, two whole years at his own expense. And welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So there we have the end of the book. And the first thing I want to talk about, you'll notice it kind of ends rather suddenly. And something we need to talk about is what happened after this. What is the rest of Paul's story? Because... The last several chapters, we've been focused primarily upon Paul and upon his ministry and upon his imprisonment and his various trials and his his exciting journey to Rome. And now that we find him at Rome, the story just ends. Well, what happened next? Well, to satisfy you, we'll dig into church history a little bit and some other sources in which we found that uh, there is information on what happened to Paul after this. He was acquitted. According to church history, this first imprisonment in Rome, there are two of them that are significant. Paul had been imprisoned other times, but when you hear theologians speak of Paul's first imprisonment or his second imprisonment, what they mean is Roman imprisonment, when he is there for a significant amount of time. And this was his first imprisonment, and it ends with him being acquitted and released. You'll notice in Second Timothy chapter four, verse sixteen, as Paul speaks to Timothy there, and we'll be in Second Timothy, First Timothy, and Titus a lot today. In Second Timothy, he mentions a first offense. He says At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. Well, he is speaking of the first time that he was in Rome, because he writes Timothy from the second time that he is in Rome. We also see that Paul traveled quite a bit, and Paul had many travels. And some of these things are alluded to in his uh, letters, and some of these things are mentioned in church history. We don't know for sure what his itinerary was after this point, because as you saw, Luke stops documenting the things, at least those things that the Holy Spirit felt necessary to bring to us. And so we're left to put pieces together out of his letters and out of church history Uh, look what he says in Romans chapter 15 as we wrote this letter to the Romans to the Roman church before going to Rome before he knew he was going uh, as a prisoner to Rome he expresses his desire to go to Rome and look what he says I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helpful on my journey to be helped on my journey there by you and so he makes it very clear he expects to go to Spain He says this also in verse 28, that when therefore I have completed this, that is his trip to Jerusalem, where he finally got arrested, uh, and have delivered them to, to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. And so it was in his heart to go to Spain. Well, we saw it was in Paul's heart to go to Rome. And no matter, even if the road was very, very strange, that took him there, he got there. So I rather think it's highly likely, actually, that Paul made it to Spain. There's a few other details. We see that he was, as he writes Titus in Titus chapter 3, best we can tell, he wrote Titus during those years after being released from his first imprisonment. He uh, he talks about uh, meeting Titus at Nicopolis. And so Nicopolis is a place where we think Paul was at some time in those years Then he speaks uh, to Titus, he actually opens his letter to Titus, speaking about the fact that he had left Titus in Crete. Well, that means two things. Number one, that he was with Titus. Number two, that he was in Crete. And so he left Titus in Crete, tells us at some point during those years, he was in Crete. And then finally, we see that he was in Macedonia. In 1 Timothy one three, he says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons etc etc so in writing 1st timothy which we believe he wrote between his imprisonments he speaks of going to macedonia so he continued to travel it's safe to say that even if we don't know the details of where and when we do know that he continued to travel There's also some writings that he did, as we spoke of uh, and as we quoted from 1 Timothy and from Titus. These were written during this period of time between his imprisonments, and we're talking about A.D. 63 through about 66 or 67 when he was arrested for the second time. So these writings were very important. We'll be speaking some also from 2 Timothy, which he wrote during his second imprisonment in Rome. So he did some writings, um, and then we know that he went back to prison. We've spoken of the second imprisonment several times, sometime about A.D. 66 or 67. He was arrested again. This time he was treated very poorly. We see from clues in 2 Timothy, which he writes from that new situation. He says, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus. For he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. So he alludes to chains, uh, not merely being a prisoner. When he was there uh, in Rome the first time, we saw in Acts chapter 28 that he had a house that he rented at his own expense. Now he was still under guard, he couldn't leave, but nevertheless he had a dwelling place of his own, and he was able to have people come and meet him however he wanted to. And that was one of his privileges of being a Roman citizen. In chapter two, verse nine of Second Timothy, he says this. Uh, he says, "I'm bound with chains as a criminal," and so this is something that was in addition. Remember, they would not bind him before because he was a Roman citizen. He was uh, expected, and as long as he didn't try to escape, that he did not have to be bound. But here, in his second imprisonment, he is. And in chapter four, verse thirteen, he says, um, "Bound with chains as a criminal in." Two nine, uh, he says, when you come uh, to Timothy, he says, when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books and above all the parchments. And so, he was uh, in need of a cloak. He was not being well cared for. He did not have the kind of luxuries that he had and was afforded when he had his own place. He was forsaken by many people, and we see him lament that in some of his letters. And it's likely due to the widespread uh, persecution. What happened between those years that we need to understand from history is this. That Emperor Nero became very hostile toward the Christians and became very violent. Now, he wasn't just toward Christians. He became violent and irrational many other ways. Now, people have conjectured, well, what's wrong with Nero? What happened to Nero during this time? Because if you remember, when we studied about Felix and about Festus replacing Felix, we learned that uh, there had been a change in emperor and Nero came along and he was having the reputation of being a little more reasonable than his predecessor, Claudius. And so he took Felix out of there because Felix had messed things up so bad with the Jews and Felix was violent and everything else. And he put Festus in there. Now it was too late. Felix had done too much damage, but nevertheless, that gave us a hint. This Nero guy's maybe a little better emperor But something in the time between Paul's release from his first imprisonment and his second one, great persecution, broke out at the hands of the emperor of Rome. Now, something you need to understand about this, the world then was made up of real people like it's made up of people now. And just because Nero's got it out for the Christians and wanted to persecute the Christians doesn't mean that the persecution was intense everywhere in the Roman Empire. There would be, as with any policy, a certain degree of compliance with that policy. As we would imagine in the United States today, for example, if, if somebody in Washington, D.C. decides to, to make some kind of an arbitrary campaign against the Christian people, well then what we would find is we would find enormous backlash, especially between the coasts. And, in the small communities and things like that, where they would just simply ignore these commands to to persecute, and they would simply uh make accommodations for Christians under the table and things of that nature, so I don't want you to get the impression that you know all the Christians in the empire were being severely persecuted. That was not the case, but it was extremely severe in Rome, which might explain why, at some point, he was abandoned by most people that could possibly help him or minister to his needs. And finally, the second imprisonment did not end like the first. This one ended in his execution. And from the early church fathers, we have the history recorded that Paul was indeed beheaded in A.D. 67 or 68 uh, for his crimes against the empire of spreading the Christian faith. The final privilege of his Roman citizenship was simply that he was beheaded instead of crucified, which was a bit of a mercy. So Paul knew very clearly as he speaks to Timothy in his second letter that the end was near. Listen to what he says here in Second Timothy chapter 4, starting verse 6. He says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. That's a profound and important description he uses of himself. When the offerings of the Israelites, which this would be the context which he was referring, because he was indeed an Israelite uh, of the order of the Pharisees, you know, very, very zealous about the truth and the law and their history and everything else. And so when he speaks of a drink offering, that takes us back to the book of Exodus and the book of Leviticus to understand what that means. And most of the offerings that the Israelites brought before the Lord were animal sacrifices or grain sacrifices. And when they brought forth the animal sacrifices, the, the animals, of course, were slaughtered, and some of that animal was put on the fire and burned. And then when it, was, when it was just the hot coals that were left, some of those coals were taken in and offered to the Lord in the holy place on the altar of incense. Now, Why is that important? Well, what happened to the rest of the animal? The parts that weren't burned, the parts that weren't burned were cooked and consumed by the people and by the Levites and by the priests, you know, so they actually got to enjoy that. A drink offering was different because if you think about it, a drink offering was offered to the Lord in prayer and then poured out and you're not getting that one back. The five second rule does not apply to liquids When it is poured out, it is gone. It settles into the dirt. It is never to be retrieved. It is never to be enjoyed by a person. And so Paul uses this terminology to explain himself. I am being poured out like a drink offering. There will be nothing left of me, but indeed, I will be with the Lord Jesus. He is being given to the Lord Jesus. He is being offered to him powerful imagery he learns, he uses here. And he goes on to say, and the time of my departure has come. So Paul fully believes that his time has come. And notice he doesn't use the word death though. See, this was Paul. Paul understood about the resurrection. Paul's the one who said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Paul had an understanding about these things, a revelation of these things, if you will, from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We'll come back to the rest of those words later, but for now, let's take a look at something else. So this is Paul's story, and this is what we can put together from his letters and from church history. Uh, But that leaves us with a question. Why did the book end so abruptly? Let's go back to the verses that we looked at at the beginning, and it just ends he was proclaiming the kingdom of God, teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And it's period. And something else I want to bring into this to, to give you even more confusion in your mind if you don't have enough already, is here in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. Look at this. He says to Timothy in 2 Timothy, during his second imprisonment, he knows he's going to be killed. He is, has just said so in the previous verses. He says, Luke alone is with me. Luke is the one who wrote the book of Acts. And Luke is with Paul at his second imprisonment, and presumably with Paul during at least some of the travels that happened in between. Why did he not write it down and append it to the book of Luke? Now, maybe he did because he just got in a good habit of it, but why did the Holy Spirit then not give us all that? Why did the Holy Spirit end the book of Acts at Acts chapter 28 verse 30? Well, the purpose of the book was not to be an exhaustive biography of the Apostle Paul. The book of Acts, though it spends the majority of its chapters following this character Paul and all that he does and and says, is not ultimately about Paul. There's much more to it than that. Luke outlined his purpose as he wrote the first volume of his work, which is what we know as the Gospel of Luke. And then the book of Acts is a continuation of that same work. Look what he says in the beginning of Luke. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, that is, among us Christians, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it's in good to me also. Having followed all things closely for some time, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So, I have a question for you Who is this Theophilus? Well, that's a good question. Scholars have debated the issue, they have to admittedly admit ignorance they have to confess that they don't know who Theophilus is. I don't know who Theophilus was. Every indication is that this is a proper name, that this represents an individual, but the name itself means beloved of God, which has made some people conjecture that Luke was writing this to the church in general, to be widely dispersed among everyone. Uh, And he just called it Theophilus to make it look like he's just writing a letter. Uh, We don't know. And all these things are conjecture. But nevertheless, the, the purpose is laid out here for us. We don't have to know who Theophilus is to see this. Why? He wrote it, is verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. And so he wrote this so that there would be certainty that Luke and Acts would serve as a two-volume set of both the life and acts of Jesus and then the acts of the apostles to follow to explain the Christian faith. And that's why he keeps so much content of the sermons in there. Now, we talked about last time about the defense theory of the book of Acts, and indeed that might be part of his purpose in doing it, but he lays out here that this is for understanding. Certainty is what he is hoping to develop in the reader. So Acts is a continuation of that purpose as we see in the introduction in the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. And then he goes on to say he appeared to the disciples and now he's continuing his, his work here in the book of Acts. But look what he says in his introduction here in verse 8 about what Jesus said in some of his last words to the apostles. He says you will receive power When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This is uh, part of the purpose that's laid out. Verse 8 in chapter 1 represents an outline, and we saw the ministry in Jerusalem, and then we saw it in Judea, and we saw it in Samaria, and we saw it go to the ends of the earth, so to speak, to the book of, or to even the Rome, uh, the city of Rome. But what is all this about? Well, something else that Jesus said uh, is what we call the Great Commission. At the end of the book of Matthew, we find this. And in here is a command for disciples to make disciples. And this is important. He speaks to his disciples. He came and he said this He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So, Jesus tells the disciples to make disciples. So, once the disciples make disciples, then what do disciples do? Disciples make, you got it, disciples. And so, all the way down the line until eventually the gospel comes to you, and you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and now you become a disciple, and now what is your purpose in life? Your purpose in life is to make disciples. See, Jesus left what is essentially an open-ended command here. As he told his disciples to make disciples, there's no end to this. It wasn't just to them, because once you make a disciple, then what's that disciple to do? I, I don't know, I guess to make disciples. And to continue to preach the gospel until the Lord's return. And so it comes up to us, then, what does this mean to us? Well, this is the next chapter we're talking about. As we discuss Luke's purpose, it reveals to us what is the next chapter? What's in store for the people of God after this? What's to follow after Paul is gone? Well, that's the Great Commission. It will continue to spread. It will continue to go. And let's read what Charles Spurgeon says about the end of the book of Acts. As he comments on these verses, he says this. He says, what was begun with so much heroism ought to be continued with ardent zeal since we are assured that the same Lord is mighty still to carry on his heavenly designs. He saw in this, well, this is making it very clear. This is to continue. The work is not done. Why does Luke end so abruptly? Well, by the design and the good purposes of the Holy Spirit so that we would continue to write it, so to speak, with our lives. Warren Wiersbe said it this way. He says, Uh, Very simply, Luke did not write his book simply to record ancient history. He wrote to encourage the church in every age to be faithful to the Lord and to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth. Yeah, you'll notice from the writing in chapter uh, 1, verse 8, the Rome isn't exactly the end of the earth. There was a whole lot left. And from the Jewish perspective, maybe Spain was the end of the earth, that Paul's ultimate goal was. Because after that, it's just a whole lot of ocean. But you know what? Even in Paul's day, people were aware there's other stuff out there. The Bible was aware of it. When you read the Old Testament, they talk about the coastlands of the sea. So they'll describe Israel, they'll describe all the stuff around Israel, and then append to it at the end, oh yeah, in the coastlands of the sea. In other words, all that other stuff out there. You know, there, there's an Africa, there's an India, there's there's all these other places across the sea that we're aware of, but not regularly visiting. And so 2,000 years and counting, this has been continuing. Millions of souls have been saved, and it is all tied back to the actions that are described there in the Book of Acts and Acts of course, in the Gospels, beginning with Jesus. 2,000 years and counting. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is, how will we continue the story? What kind of church will we be? And when I say that, I'm speaking of your local church. What kind of church will your church be? How long will it be a church? How long will it continue to send others? Will it continue to send others Our church here, White Throne Baptist Church in Easterday, Kentucky, which is now Carrollton, Kentucky, was established in 1810. For over 200 years, we have been ministering the gospel in this community, and many generations have come and gone. And there have been times when the church has been filled, and there are times when it has been largely empty. But it has all the while served the gospel. And it has proclaimed the gospel and it has sent people out and it has received people in and it has developed people and trained people and it has seen people be born and believe and baptized and it has seen people die. And all the while continuing to do what it does since its inception, since the inception of the church at the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And the questions we have to ask ourselves is we have to look at the book of Acts, and, like Acts chapter 2, and ask ourselves, will we be dedicated to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to prayers and worship as the early church was? Will we be dedicated to meet each other's needs in love, to give to everyone as anyone would have need? Will we do as the church did in Acts chapter 4 and pray for boldness? Will we stand beside those that are persecuted for proclaiming the truth? Will we be so zealous for right living that those who make a living from the sins of others will feel the pinch and riot in the streets like we saw in the book of Acts? Will we recognize the gifts of those among us and let them flourish and grow and encourage them and equip them on their way? Will we send them out to spread the good news? Will we effect such change in our communities by the spreading of the gospel that it's noticed by all? Will we conduct ourselves in our churches in such a way as to earn a reputation that causes fear and respect among the unbelievers?" Those are the questions we have to ask ourselves. How will we continue the story? And now, let's make it personal. Let's ask this question. Go back to that. What will your role be? Will you be a big, bold Peter proclaiming before the crowds and authorities? Or will you be one of the nameless hundreds or thousands of homes in which bread was broken and people prayed and worshipped and gathered together? Will you be one that's been rescued from, from addiction or from the demonic influences of the world and helped to stand on your own two feet as others marveled? Will you be like the Apostle John who testified of the Jesus who loved him and wrote about him? Will you be an elder called to lead the people as we saw elders appointed in all the churches that Paul had visited? It's a noble pursuit. It's one that should be desired by people, but it should also be feared because, as James tells us, it has a stricter judgment to be one in a position of teaching the people of God. Will you be a deacon called to serve the body of Christ, like we saw in Acts 6, to care for widows and orphans? Where do your passions lie? Do you wish to alleviate the suffering of those in poverty or those around you who are hurting because of the ways of the world and even their own sins? Will you help those who have, are imprisoned by their addictions or whose own foolishness and sin has gotten themselves into prison? Will you help them out to, to have the liberty of the gospel in their hearts? Will you just hold up the arms of those who lead and preach? Will you be a Stephen boldly bearing witness in front of those who even hate you? Will you be a Philip proclaiming the truth at every opportunity as you go from here to there, raising a godly family that carries forward the truth? Will you be a Barnabas helping and encouraging and giving people a second chance when they need it? Will you be a Paul breaking new ground, zealous for the truth, willing to stand up for what is right? Will you be a Timothy starting young and following in the footsteps of an elder to a ministry of your own? Will you be a James, a great administrator and wise leader of a large church? Will you be a Lydia, a layperson and founding member of a church in her own home, a gracious host to the ministers of the gospel, investing her wealth in their cause? Will you be a Jason who stands up to the crowds and defends those who proclaim the gospel? Will you, like Paul, address academia and philosophers to know their, and understand their ways and then challenge them on their beliefs? Will you be a debater of theology, defeating false beliefs? Will you be like Ananias and Sapphira, lovingly correcting a minister of the gospel, or like the one they corrected, Apollos, a well-spoken and zealous preacher of the gospel, but humble enough to have the correction of this godly couple? Will you be a Silas? We didn't talk much about Silas. Silas was often there. He's often mentioned in the narratives. But he never needed to be the center of attention. He never needed to be a star. But he's there. And he's ministering with Paul and with the others. Would you be like Crispus, who was a ruler of a synagogue? He led his household to faith. And he provided resources to start a church to begin when his own people had rejected it. Will you be like Aristarchus and Luke coming alongside someone like Paul and enduring hardships like a shipwreck with him? I think you get the idea. And obviously your homework is to reread the book of Acts and to consider these people and to consider your own role. And what are your passions? When you read something in the book of Acts, what makes you passionate that you want to be involved in, that you want to do? Because every part of the body is different and God equips each one of us differently. Some of us will proclaim the gospel, some of us will clean toilets, and they are all equal in the eyes of God, as we'll see momentarily that the standard is faithfulness. See, we have no promise that our role will be known and recorded in the books of history of our people, but we have with absolute certainty this, that we do have a role, you are. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have a role to play in the kingdom of God. And God will reveal it to you if you but seek it. And he will bless you in it, should you choose to pick it up. But several things we have with absolute certainty, and these are my final encouragements to you. Let's take a look at that momentarily. I want to start with this. Look again here at the Great Commission. And look at the words that Jesus ends it with. He says, and behold. Behold means looky here. Listen up. He says, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That is our first encouragement, is that indeed he is with us always, even to the end of the age. And so I want to take this as the first encouragement. How important is it that the Lord Jesus is with us always? to the end of the age. It's critically important. And this is, uh, this is so profoundly important. Let me make a fix here something for you. here. All right. There we go. Wanted to update that for you. Jesus is with us always to the end of the age. And this is critically important because Jesus is the one who is building the church. He is the one who continues to build his church. That's why he says he will be with us. Look at this as we go back to the scriptures here. In Matthew 16, verse 18, he says simply this, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. His first mention of it is that he is the one building the church. This is an action of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is so important to understand because it does not depend upon our power. Now, it does depend upon our faithfulness. That indeed we must be faithful to obey his commission if we if we want him to build his church through us, and so it, but the encouragement is he is always with us, and he is the power beyond the building. That was a major point of the book of Acts is that this is done by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Lord Jesus building his church, and he will continue to do so always. So we go forward then, what is our raw material for building the church? We go forward with the word of God. I want to take you to Isaiah fifty-five eleven and show this to you uh, for just a moment, because here in Isaiah is speaking of all that God is going to do for Israel. But as you read the book of Isaiah and the context that we find this verse in, he's talking about more than just building the nation Israel. He's talking about establishing a people for himself forever from all the nations. And so he speaks of this this way. He says, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I send it. Do you see all the shalls there? You know, this is how my word's going to work. It's not going to come back to me empty. It's going to accomplish all that it should and all that I want it to. And so the Lord gives this guarantee on his word, which is the raw material, as we saw time and time again, the raw material of the preaching of the gospel, the word of God. Boy, so many people bemoan today the fact that if only our churches had miracles, if only something great would happen here, like somebody healed dramatically from a great horrible thing, or maybe if we exorcised some demons out of somebody, that would get an, an enough tension on the gospel that that people would believe, that would do enough of a push that people would see some kind of a miracle and suddenly believe in things. If all our members could be so blessed with with perfect character as to be assigned to everybody, or if we could be blessed with health and wealth and prosperity, that it would be a sign. But we're not told, we're not promised that the signs of God are going to build his church. We're not promised that it's the signs of God that are going to accomplish these things. Matter of fact, Jesus promised That lying signs and wonders would be in the world in the last days. That false prophets would even be doing signs and wonders. And we even saw that in the book of Acts. The promise to build the church is on the word of God. This is our raw material. And that is good because that means it's not a matter of our persuasiveness. It's not a matter of our cleverness or our eloquence. We saw this with Paul, where sometimes Paul wasn't so eloquent. And he admits it in his first letter to the Corinthians, that I wasn't particularly eloquent when I came. Matter of fact, I looked foolish to people. But nevertheless, people believed. And lives were changed and people were moved from death to life. If you want a miracle, display the miracle that has happened in your life when God took your heart of stone and made it a heart of flesh. When God took you from death and he put you into life. This is the gospel power to change lives by his word. When Paul explains The armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6. And he reminds us that ours is not a battle against just what we see. It is a spiritual battle of forces that are in this world. Forces in the heavenly places. And of all the pieces of armor, there is one offensive weapon listed. And it is the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. That is our offensive weapon. And remember when Jesus said he'll build the church? He'll say the gates of hell shall not defend against it. We're going to tear them down. And we're going to go in with our primary weapon, the Word of God. Boy, it's an exciting thing, and it takes the pressure off, and it takes the weight off, that this is about God's Word going forth. This is about God succeeding in the Gospel. And it is upon us to merely bring the message. And the final encouragement I want to give you is simply this. If you are in Christ, you absolutely will play some kind of a role in this. And the measure of your success is not how many lives you impact. It's not measurable in the amount of baptisms that you're so-called responsible for. It's not in the size of your church or your ministry or your outreach. It's not in your fame or your likes on social media. The standard is faithfulness. To finish your course, whatever your course is, it will be unique. And not in numbers, but in impact. And not in number of pages you write, but in the faithfulness to bring it forth. It is important what we do and how we do it. It matters, but it all carries the same reward, the crown of righteousness. Let's look at something that Paul said there, something else he said in these verses in Timothy that we just looked at. He says this, he says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Now you read that, and you go, oh, that's that Paul, man, he really was something. He really preached a lot of things. He, did, he went all over the world. He sacrificed his life to, to further the cause of the gospel. He poured love into people that didn't necessarily give it back. And he preached in places faithfully when even they rejected him. That Paul, he deserves that crown of righteousness. But read on what Paul says. here. He says, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. Paul's great encouragement was this, that he was going to get what everyone else gets. Do you see the humility of this one? And, and it's not to pump him up by saying he was humble. It's to show the Lord had humbled this man. He went from being zealous against the church to being zealous for the church. And he was humbled by God. And he now understands that he's going to receive a crown of righteousness. But it's not anything that every other believer doesn't get. It's the same. It's the same. I want you to let that sink in for a minute and I want you to go as part of your homework to Matthew chapter 20 where Jesus tells a parable and he tells a parable about the fact that the kingdom of God is like a a man who owned a vineyard and he hired laborers for the vineyard and he went to the marketplace in the morning and he found some to come labor and they went and they labored all day and he found some in the midday to come and labor and they labored all day and he found some late in the day and found them to labor in his vineyard, and they labored the rest of the day. And he went even very late in the day, when it was almost dark, the day is almost done, and asked some more people to come labor in his vineyard. And as they all labored in his vineyard, when it was quitting time, he brought them together and paid them. And he paid them all a single denarius. All of them whether they came early in the day or late in the day. Now, I know some of you capitalists are just losing your mind right now because you realize that's not fair. This guy you know, called some early in the day and he paid them the same as the ones that came late in the day and barely worked at all. What the Lord Jesus is saying is there are some of us that will be Paul's, that will be right out in front, will be public and visible, constantly, every moment of our lives, visible to the church. And there will be others of us who quietly live out our Christian life, witness to who we can, raise godly families, contribute to the church and the work of the church locally, but never anything that's going to be displayed and seen by everyone else. And we're going to get paid just the same. That's the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Lord, you know the Lord, uh, the owner of the vineyard says to all of them at the end, "Isn't that what I told you I would pay you? Because they all came, and He said, "I will pay you a day's wage to come." And Jesus gives to all of us eternal life, and he'll give all who love his appearing, which would be all believers in Jesus Christ, the crown of righteousness for faithfully finishing the race for going through the whole course. For staying true to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are in Christ, you will play a role in this. And no matter the size of the role, your faithfulness is the measure. And you will receive this crown of righteousness as you finish the race, enduring to the end faithfulness to Jesus Christ. And my encouragement for you today is to get started. Review the book of Acts. Look around your community. What makes you passionate, what makes you want to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to people, or at least be involved in some way? Let's find that passion together as we pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word, and we do stand amazed, and we praise you for all that you accomplished in the early church as we read about it in Luke's work. We praise you for the Apostle Paul in the special way that you made him and called him in the special ministry that he had. We thank you for his faithfulness as he would thank you and you alone. We give you the glory for all that you did through him as he indeed would only give you the glory. And we ask you, Lord, help us to be faithful to the end in whatever endeavor you call us to. Help us to find it. Help us to work at it with our might. Be it big or small, in the eyes of the world, let us remember that you look upon us as your children, that you assign to us the task you wish us to be faithful in, and we need not attempt any other thing but to be faithful to you. We thank you, Lord, for all that you have done. We pray, Lord, that you will indeed move us all to be faithful in that call which we have. And, Lord, we know that if we are not busy about the work of your kingdom, we must question whether we are in your kingdom. I pray today that those listening that realize I've done nothing for Christ Lord, I pray that you'll give them a spirit of repentance that they will turn from their own ways, that they'll turn toward your ways and embrace what you have for them. Salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ who gave his own body as a sacrifice for our sins. Lord we praise you for that work most and above all that you would redeem unto yourself these people. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, we're amazed at that. And we pray, Lord, that you'll incorporate us all into the body of Christ in a way that suits you and brings you glory and brings you honor, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope you found that an encouragement. Thank you for watching or listening. Hopefully you've caught the whole series. The whole series is available on Sermon Audio, the Book of Acts. It's all free for you to download. If you want to contact us for some reason about this, if you want to ask for resources or help finding a church or whatever it is that you need, even if you just want us to pray for you or if you've prayed for us, make that known to us, contact us at whitesrunbaptist at gmail.com. We'll be happy to interact with you in whatever way is most helpful. God bless you.